welcome if you're a visitor. Um, If you've got a Bible, you might want to start turning to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, that's where we've got to so far. And we're going to be reading verses 1 to 7, Acts 6, 1 to 7. So I hope you've enjoyed the Easter break, the Easter holidays. Um, um, Over the last few weeks, uh, for those of you who are not regular at Jubilee, over the last few weeks, uh, we've been looking at the birth of the early church as recorded in this book in the Bible called Acts. And an amazing book, really, written only about 40 to 50 years after the Easter story by a learned, by a guy, um, a learned doctor, just like the learned doctor we have in our presence today, called Luke, um, uh, who gathered data, who, you know, he did, it, he, did his, he did his homework, he gathered data, he studied the facts, he interviewed people, and he chronicled historically his robust findings after doing all the research in this book of Acts. And so that's why we take it seriously, really. And really, the main reason we're looking at it is because the book of Acts is a blueprint, if you like, about how God broke into humanity as the historical reality of Jesus went viral. Yeah, before the age of the internet. Jesus said in Acts 1, talking to his ragtag handful of early followers who fumbled their way through all the Gospels, Um, And suddenly he said to them, and they probably shocked the living daylights out of them, and he said, but you, you guys, the same guys that were in the Gospels who kept on messing up, will receive power when the Holy Spirit, Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, the surrounding area, in Samaria, the bits, the people that people didn't like, and the whole earth. They would have been flabbergasted to hear that. You see, Acts describes God the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, changing history through the church in truth and miracles and changed lives and grace and compassion and reconciliation and restoration, a world-changing, life-transforming, freedom-releasing, joy-bringing reality. That's the book of Acts. Let me ask you a question. How can such a phenomenal event in the story of the world only scratch the surface, the periphery of my life, your life, and the church today? Think about it. If we truly believe in what we are reading in the book of Acts here, the church shouldn't be, cannot be, never must be just a sideline pastime issue. I am grateful for being in this church because many of you I know live your life for Jesus and the church. But it's a challenge. It challenged me. It cannot be an on-the-edge issue. You see, we can do superficial church. We can go through the motions, if you like, each Sunday. We can uh, give a little. We can um, um, love a little, pray a little, sing a little. But you know what? Jesus, I believe Jesus wants so much more uh, for us. And really, that's my prayer as we've been looking through, studying, praying through Acts, not just on Sundays, but in our community groups, that the church that the church will increasingly become the body of Jesus declaring his reality to the rest of the world, just as we heard there when Shirley encountered that man. That's what happened in Acts. It was vibrant. It was alive. 
And so we come this morning to Act 6. So far, Jesus, if you've, uh, um, if you've not been following us, so far, Jesus appeared to lots of people before finally he ascends to heaven. That Pentecost hits planet Earth as the people are filled with God the Holy Spirit. Thousands, thousands become Christians and a church was birthed overnight. And then we get into Gogismos. Who figured out what Gogismos meant? Who's looking very blank? We'll get into it in a minute. It's related to a Facebook post. Gogismos, a Greek word that means complaint, a muttering. Suddenly we have a complaint, a muttering, a murmuring, a grumble amongst this newfound church. Uh Uh-oh. Let's read it, shall we? Acts 6, 1 to 7. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, did you hear that? Someone was taking a a number count. In those days, the church was increasing. How did they know? Someone was recording uh, the numbers on some Excel document somewhere, graphing it all. For those of you who don't think numbers are important, numbers are important. We count people because people count. Yeah. Anyhow, side issue. In those days, when the number of disciples was, were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking, more liberal Jews among them, complained, gugismos, muttered against the Hebraic Jews, the more conservative Aramaic-speaking traditional Jews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Grecian grandma wasn't getting her lunch on time. So, the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, this is so important, therefore, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and ministry of the Word. This proposal, this really good idea, pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of the faith and the Holy Spirit. Eventually he became the first martyr, Christian martyr. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, uh, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas and Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They were all Hellenistic Jews. They chose those guys. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them, commissioned them for what uh, they wanted them to do. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, even more so. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for what seems like Um, a little window into the church in amongst the radical happenings of uh, what's going on. But I thank you, Lord, that every word is profitable to us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, as we unpack this, as we look at it in a little bit of detail, I pray, Holy Spirit, that it will touch us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that it will open that whole issue of how we handle one another, how we handle uh, a growing church, how we handle a thriving church, how we handle gogismos, these complaints, these grumbles. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll give us grace, that you'll give us patience, that you'll be our model as we uh, look to how this changes us. In Jesus' name, amen.
so. There was a complaint, um, a, a gogismos. That's the Greek word, like when the Israelites muttered and murmured about God in the wilderness. And Moses said to them in Exodus 16, 7, and in the morning, stop, stop, stop murmuring and muttering because in the morning you will see the glory of the God because he has heard your grumbling against him. Then food from, fell from the sky and the, the, the Israelites were provided for. Or in Numbers 14, 26, we see this word again. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard their complaints. Of, I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. Gagismos. We hear it again in, from the Apostle Paul too in 1 Corinthians describing the grumbling, complaining church. Um, and a uh, 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 grumbling, complaining church. And so here in Acts, we have another gigismos, another complaint. The church was thriving, the church was growing, the church was experiencing miracles, fellowship, generosity, receiving the Spirit, and uh, receiving Jesus in spirit and truth were hallmarks of this phenomenal church. But here we go. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because dot, dot. Although Jesus was happy with uh, growing numbers, not everybody else was. We don't like this. We don't like that. I used to be able to park my camel right out in front, but there's no room in anymore. The coffee's terrible. Nobody here loves me. Nobody calls me. The sound's too loud. The sound's too quiet. I want my more Bible study. I want more social chatting. That tongue wasn't interpreted correctly. The kids are doing my head in. The kids are never looked after in this church. We should be doing that. We shouldn't be doing that. Ah! Sorry, I just need to get that off my chest. <laughs> this is um, very therapeutic for me. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Complaints, anger, frustration, grumbling, conflict, gagismos in the midst of change and breakthrough. Jubilee, this is an amazing insight into the real church, isn't it? You see, the church is full of active passionate, Jesus-loving people who want to see kingdom advance and gospel transformation. There's going to be complaints and conflict and frustration. It's just the way it is. Jean Vanier, a Catholic philosopher and theologian, once wrote, communities like this need tensions if they are to grow and deepen. Tensions come from conflicts. A tension, hear this, a tension or a difficulty can signal the approach of a new grace of God, an opportunity. But it has to be looked at wisely and humanly. John Ortberg writes in his brilliant book, Everybody's Normal Until You Get to Know Them, like the title. There is no greater challenge in building church community than to master the art of handling conflict and complaints. So that's where we're going. Um, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. How to handle gagismotes well. So firstly, uh, so firstly, let's look at a few helpful pointers when it comes to resolving complaints, expressing our concerns well, raising issues well. If we're to advance the kingdom of God, we need to get this. Get what the Bible is saying about this. 
So firstly, I've written here, we are to create a relational culture, something that's deep, deep in, to create a relational culture of love where acknowledging conflict and complaint is allowed. Yeah? If we're to make great strides for God, we must be open to the whole uh, to the whole of Jesus' body, the whole church, to express what we feel, hear what we have to say, take heed and reflect on people's concerns and sometimes grumbles, sweeping things under the carpet or letting lies fester and exaggerate out of all proportion or, or being dictatorial about how we lead isn't ser- servant leadership, isn't a godly display of authority, isn't actually Jesus' way. Conflict and complaint and grumbles in the church are part of the furniture. Someone wrote, to be alive is to be in conflict. Avoidance kills community. Avoidance causes resentment. That's the first thing. Secondly, we are to take responsibility. Um, secondly, we are to take responsibility. We are to take responsibility in the midst of conflict and complaints. Who's the we, you might be asking? Him or me? Jesus' answer is yes. Both of you. He calls on everyone who is part part of a disagreement to own the task of reconciliation. That seems unfair, doesn't it? It wasn't my fault. But in Jesus' radical way of dealing with disagreements, there's no room for fault, self-righteousness, and wanting to blame the other person. And sneaking out of my own responsibility, whether you're in the wrong or in the right, if there is a fracture, if there is a conflict, Jesus says, the burden is on you both to make this right. Revolutionary. Then and now. Thirdly, he says, thirdly, keep your hair on. Keep calm. The writer of Proverbs says, a quick-tempered person does foolish things. I often find when I'm quick-tempered, I do lots of foolish things. We live in an age where communication is fast and so accessible we can text and email and Facebook and Twitter our thoughts immediately. And as good as this is sometimes, it has its downfalls. We can often bypass the complexity of the human interaction in all of this. It can often speed up communication so much that we don't have time to stop, pray, and think about what we're saying before we push the button and go public. Over the years, I've noticed that more often than not, it's not what we deliver, but how we deliver what we have to say, which gets us into bother, gets me into bother not taking into consideration what might be going on um, um, uh, going on in the other person's life as we get all engrossed in our, uh, in our own personal issues, not being polite and loving in how we say what we want to say, not delivering our thoughts uh, in love, not considering the bigger picture of the church over our own personal agenda, not being descriptive about issues, not being descriptive about issues, but rather being aggressive and emotive and personal and hot-headed. You know what? There's a myth out there, and this is a myth. There's a big myth. And the myth is, well, what people say is that, that ventilating your anger and fury is a really good idea. 
But let me tell you, it's a myth. It's garbage. Researchers in many studies have discovered this very important fact. Hear this, listen. People don't enjoy being ventilated on. When we just ventilate our anger, in, uh, in every case, the ventilator has a really good time, but the ventilatee doesn't like it. Good research about that. It's a fact. Charlotte often asks me to read important texts or emails that she sends about sensitive issues because she's so conscious of the fact that, um, that these ways of communication can be misread. Sometimes in my busyness, I can just get a bit frustrated and just say, and think, just send it! But what she's saying is, I want another pair of eyes on this, separated from all of my emotions and up and downs, just to make sure it'll be received well. We can learn from that. The simplest guideline is this, to approach the other person, people, in the very same you would want to be approached if you were in their place. Fourthly, aim high. In fact, I feel a Mexican, let's do this. Mexican wave, I feel a Mexican wave coming on. Let's start here. I'm serious. Let's start here and up and go. Aim high. Aim high. Aim high. Aim for reconciliation. The goal in Gogizmos resolution, complaints, conflict situations, isn't to win or score points and get revenge. It's to reconcile. It's to make peace. And let me tell you, it's rarely simple and almost never quick. Reconciliation in the midst of disagreement takes time. Jesus says in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother and sister, and he deliberately phrases it like like this because he wants to tell you there's a heart connection, a Jesus' blood connection between us. If your brother and sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Woohoo! He doesn't say you've sorted the problem out. No, you have won them over. Don't try and fast forward it or cut corners. Take time, listen, think, pray. Hear what's underneath it all. Put yourself in the other person's shoes. Think of them more than you're thinking of yourselves. Put on dollops of grace and compassion and forgiveness and understanding. Go overboard. Go wild in love. We want to win them over to us. Question, how are you doing? How are you normally addressing your grumbles, your differences? In what ways is God calling you to rethink this? It's very important. That's why it's there at the beginning of Acts. Oh, the beginning of the early church. The apostles and the disciples of the early church took the issue of complaint, conflict, disagreement seriously. But the other thing we see here is they also were not going to let it distract them from the wider purposes of God. Complaints can do that sometimes. It says in verse 2, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word for God, of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over, them, over to them. We're not going to ignore the problem 
and we will give our attention to prayer and ministry of the Word and lead this church well. This is a big deal. We live in a world where distractions are all over the place. Diversions are all over the place. As, one of, as a GP, one of the biggest fears and diversions from my day to day is the issue of complaints and potential going to court. It takes me away from what I'm doing. When my dad died, I was sorting out his will at the solicitors. Great solicitors. They really helped us really well. But there was a pressure about making sure that I wasn't missing out on suing the NHS for anything and everything that might have possibly have gone wrong. You know what? They looked after him brilliantly. Here, Luke is saying that complaints and grumbles, however important they are, mustn't take us away from the advancement of God's kingdom. You see, this is the issue. Of, this, you see, this is the issue about the widows being treated on each being treated, un- um, uh, being treated unequally. It was a big deal. Uh, we can sometimes read this and think the apostles were above serving all high and mighty, uh, uh, that they lacked compassion when it came to this complaint. No, not at all. That's not what this is saying. It was very important to them. The church declaring the compassion of Jesus was, uh, was, was at the heart of why the church grew so rapidly in the first century and onwards, even now. They realized that this was so important that they chose the best people to make it possible. They didn't sweep it under the carpet or ignore it. Did you notice the qualifications here for choosing those people? It didn't say choose seven men who had experiencing or experience on waiting on tables, men who had served their time in Pizza Hut and gathered the skills necessary for the job. It doesn't say that, does it? It says they picked people who they saw God's Spirit overflowing in their lives. Guys who were gushing with love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Character is key when it comes to leadership and service and especially handling division and complaint. They chose people whose lives On top of being filled with the Spirit, they chose people whose lives demonstrated wisdom, the wisdom of God, how they operated at home and in their marriages if they were married, how they parented, how they were in in life at work, people who were relationally strong, how they devoted themselves to prayer and God's Word and their relationship with Jesus, carving out time in the midst of all the pulls of our life to grow and cultivate our intimacy with God is essential. If you're relatively new at this, if you're relatively new and you've come through Alpha or you're a new Christian, can I just say, cultivate, get alongside people who might have been uh, on this journey for a bit longer. Get alongside those of you who know those people. Get alongside them. I know this is happening amongst some of you. And cultivate, grow, deepen this intimacy with God. So important. Skills on their own won't get us through. The job's too big. Jubilee, we have an enemy prowling around like a lion, all the time watching and waiting to pounce and drag out God's people. We've seen that over the years. I've seen that over the years. Um, we've see, um, I, we, uh, what I've noticed over these times, over the years that have gone by, 
uh, uh, when I've had to deal with difficult disagreements and division is often is that often what people perceive as happening seems to get out of all proportion compared to what is actually happening. Truth is often misted over. Often in, in that landing strip that people put their, themselves in, lies creep in. Often we can get drawn into thinking uh, not so great things about other people. I some, I've, I've got to watch that myself. Um, um, not thinking negatively or bad things about my brothers and sisters in Christ. How This is Jubilee. This is how the enemy works. He's very cunning. Think about it. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus say about the church? I will build my church and bad coffee on Sunday will not overcome it. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, you know, Jesus takes spiritual attack, the devil, seriously. He doesn't say, I will build my church and not so great worship with the occasional duff notes. That didn't happen today, by the way. Will, uh, will not overcome it. No, he doesn't talk about that either. He doesn't say pastoral mistakes. I will build my church and pastoral mistakes and oversight will not overcome. He doesn't say those things. What does he say? He says, I will build my church and the powers of hell will not overcome it. It's a big deal. We can sometimes gloss over that as well as the church trying to be nice and friendly. Jubilee, we have an enemy that wants to bring down the church and it requires men and women full of God's gunpowder his spirit dwelling in us and filling us persistently so that the character and wisdom of God shines through us in everything we say and do and decide on and act on and the more we get this listen the devil doesn't have a chance and lastly the other thing that I notice in uh, here, which sparks off the complaint in the first place. And that is the beautiful thing in the church called diversity. That's what kicks it off. You see, we have two groups of poor widows here. And simplistically, we can think the Greek-speaking lot fell out with the Hebrew-speaking lot uh, because they were getting a big better deal. Maybe they just didn't understand each other. Maybe they needed a bit of subtitles, translation during the church announcement, and that would have sorted it all out. But this division was much more greater than just language or geography. These were essentially two different people groups divided over the centuries by history and culture and persecution and tradition, just like many of the cultures in this room. We can often overlook that. There were deep-seated walls between them. And even though this disparity in getting food uh, out to the different groups was probably more an administrative problem or, or an organizational problem, actually emotions and hot-headedness kicked in. Based on this historic, deep, deep division. Richard Longnecker, Longenecker uh, writes in his commentary, he says this, there had always, of course, been rivalry between these two groups in Jewish culture. The tragedy, the tragedy is that uh, it, it was perpetuated within the new community of Jesus who by his death had, dis had abolished such distinctions. Jubilee diversity is unique here. 
Diversity is what God is doing here, whether you like it or not. It's not a sideline issue or, or a sideline ministry. It's not an accident just because we're involved in other things like open and door. This is what God wants our church increasingly to look like. Question, how are you going out of your way to make this happen more and more? It's an important question in this church. What are the mountains or hurdles that you need to get over to ensure God's church is being built just as he wants it to be built? Are you, how, can you, how can you navigate language challenges, the culture challenges, the way we do things here, uh, or the way we do things different challenges in your community groups and devoted groups? How are you involving everyone in the life of the church, not just as spectators, but as contributors? Maybe that'll be one of the questions this week. Just look around. Just look around. Just look around. Isn't it jaw-dropping how over the years God has built so much difference in us. Different nations, different ages, different languages, different backgrounds, different stories growing in our closeness and service to God and to one another. These differences have been planted out into different parts of the country, different parts of the world. Yes, it's harder. Yes, it's slower. Yes, it sometimes doesn't feel very trendy. Yes, there are bust-ups. Yes, we sometimes get up each other's noses. Yes, we get it wrong sometimes with one another. But yes, 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 this is what marks us out, Jubilee, from all other organizations. God's here, gluing us together for the display of his multicolored glory. It's right there. It's right there in Isaiah 61. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. This is a planting of the Lord for the display to everyone, not just in here, but out of here, of God's splendor. Do you see the church like that? If the band can come up. I remember praying this whole diversity issue out in a prayer meeting when we used to meet um, in the woodshed in Portrack some 15 years ago now. And one guy, some of you will remember him, uh, called Ray. Ray, he prophesied that one day the inside of the church would look like the outside of the church. Do you remember that? That's always stuck with me. And then the inside of the church really didn't look like the outside of the church. But God is building vibrant, diverse, and very tricky community. Gordon Fee writes this, God God isn't simply saving diverse individuals and preparing them for heaven. Rather, He is miraculously creating in you and me and Gavin and and Rob and Helen and Andy and Gemma and Les and Stuart and all of us a people for his name 
among whom God can dwell and who in her life together will produce God's life and character in all its unity and diversity and joy. I love that quote because it describes the church that I feel God served me for. Say it again. I will. God isn't simply saving diverse individuals and preparing them for heaven. Rather, he is miraculously creating in you and me a people for his name among whom God can dwell and, in who, in, in, and, in, and who in her life together will produce God's life and character in all its unity and diversity and joy. Jubilee, this is a church for everyone. This is a church for everyone. The more and more diverse we become, the more and more God will cause us and equip us to gagismos well with one another. Let's be committed to mastering together the art of handling conflict and complaints and grumbles and differences because they're going to happen. Let's take hold of these moments and allow them to be moments of God's grace to us and grow us and deepen our fellowship, unity, and love for one another. Let's continue to be God's church for everyone. Let's stand. Yes, Lord, I thank you um, for this church. I thank you for its diversity, the fact that it's vibrant, the fact that it's alive, that it, the fact that it uh, is made up of many colors and languages and backgrounds. I thank you, Lord, that you are growing your church. I thank you that uh, you are victorious in the lives of people in this church and in this church as it seeks to make a radical difference in the places that you put the church in. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will fall on us, that you will equip us, that you will um, bring us more and more together. And I pray, even in these moments of grace, these sometimes difficult times, I pray, Lord God, that they will bring greater unity, that they will bring greater understanding, that they will bring God more and more into different situations and differences in our lives. Holy Spirit, as a leadership, let us be open to this. Let us understand this. I pray, Holy Spirit, that uh, decisions aren't just made by us, but actually your church and that uh, the authority that you've given us, the wisdom that you've uh, given us to oversee um, what you've called us to oversee. I pray, Holy Spirit, that we handle this well, that we handle this wisely, that we handle this godly. We ask for your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Let's worship, let's pray.